Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 115. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you that you are able to bring us together despite the immense distance between many of us. Uh, I'm in South Korea and many of the people who are with me live tonight are in America. And yet, after this video gets recorded and uploaded to YouTube, there will be people from different countries around the world uh, in many remote parts, uh, as I mentioned last week, some in Australia, some in uh, New Zealand, some in Ireland, some in Africa, uh, some in Europe, um, just people from all over the globe coming together and being able to share together in this unique experience. And Lord, not that I'm some person special, that they all need to sit around their computer screen and listen to my teachings, but that I'm able to help participate in spreading the good news to people around the world using this particular medium. Who would have thought that when Yeshua commissioned us at the end of Matthew to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that this would be one of the ways that we could accomplish that goal? Thank you, Lord, for this awesome task. I pray that you'll continue to raise me up and give me a voice uh, give me clarity of thought, give me protection from the adversary and from evil men. Help me to continue to um, um, share your uh, good news with those who will listen. I pray that you will touch the hearts of those who do tune into my podcasts and my YouTube videos and go to my website and read my commentaries and interact with me. Um, give them ears to hear and hearts to, 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 uh, to comprehend. Uh, give us ears to hear. Help us to, to press in. Lord, now more than ever, we need to be um, um, uh, being about our Father's business, as it were. We need to, to be serious about kingdom building. We need to be serious about uh, uh, securing our relationship with Messiah, Yeshua, making sure that he's our first love. Um, we've got to spend time with Yeshua every day. We've got to press into the Holy Spirit. We've got to avail ourselves. Of, Paul said it best, be be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a commandment, Lord. We've got to be filled with the Spirit over and over again. One rabbi friend of mine jokingly quipped, the reason we need to be filled with the Spirit over and over again is because we leak. <laughs> so, Lord, help us to continue to be um, filled so that we can be poured out. That's the real truth, why we need to be filled over and over again. is because we need to be poured out. We're filled up to be poured out again over and over to the people around us. Help us to be bold in our testimony. Continue to protect us from this um, evil plague, this this this. Uh, 
pandemic, this virus that's overtaken the world. Lord, we know that you're in control. We thank you for your uh, protection and for your healing and for um, touching our lives and um, providing for us, even in the midst of these difficult financial times and and confusing political times and and stressful um, uh, uh, racial tension and and things like that. Lord, uh, just so much uh, um, fear in the world today. But we don't fear because we serve a God who has overcome fear. You've not given us a spirit of fear. Thank you, Lord, that you're strengthening us and that you're raising us up. Continue to protect us and raise us up, and uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a congregation in a real place. And I say that because, you know, the Internet's a dangerous place. Anyone can go to the Internet and uh, record a video and upload it to uh, the internet and a million people can watch it and suddenly you have a million people in the dark who are tuning into garbage, who are feeding themselves with half-truths or worse yet, outright lies. And it's very little accountability these days. Um, You can't tell who's accountable to who. You can't tell who's reliable. And so um, some of the steps that you can take take to protect yourself from the dangers of, you know, uh, Rabbi Google is to um, make sure that the people that you're listening to have some form of accountability themselves, preferably to a real life congregation or church body where you can call and you can ask about them. Hey, I heard this guy on the internet, I watched one of his YouTube videos and he said thus and such. And is that what you guys teach and believe? And is there anyone else that can kind of back, back him up? Or things like that. You know, what's his track record? How long has he been there? Uh, you know, do, do you do you know about what he's teaching? Those are some of the first things you can start to do. And there's 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 there is safety in numbers. So I'm not saying that's wrong to be on your own, but being a lone ranger these days isn't the healthiest way to um, be an internet teacher. So I'm thankful to have my membership parked at the Harvest. For those of you who are watching this YouTube video right now, let me just run through some very very brief um, announcements. I'll try to make them brief. Um, the Harvest is a real life congregation. You can find us online at www.graftedin.com. And currently, we are practicing um, a form of shelter in place, uh, a social distancing that our government our, our uh, governing. Um, uh, the, the, the authorities in our state are recommending that we just not have live service live services at the moment. So we're doing the uh, the, the streaming services. So uh, click on the resources there. You can see them on my screen now, and you can watch the uh, the live streams that we al- upload to YouTube and things like that. Also, um, you can go to my own website at graph at uh, um, tetetora.com. I'll spell that one for you. It's T E T Z E. T-O-R-A-H dot com. And uh, from the homepage, this is not the homepage, but the homepage looks similar to this. From the homepage, there are a cluster of links there, and you can avail yourself of all the resources that I make available for you. This is the live internet studies that you're listening to right now and watching. And let me give you some of the details for the live internet studies. Um, This is episode number 115 tonight. The meeting date for the timestamp that I'm doing this recording is November 14th, 2020, even though you're probably going to be watching this video five or six days, nearly a week later. We meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for the live study. If you'd like to join us live, just keep listening. I'll give you some details. But there are some perks to joining us live. 
uh, we meet for about an hour and we cover two primary segments. The first 30 minute segment, segment one, is on a um, study that I put together on Romans 14. It's called Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my part 34 for tonight. And then segment two will cover 30 minutes of what I've a study that I've caught in, entitled Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, paper two of three parts, pun intended there. And the paper two is entitled um, Hashem and Yeshua, or Adonai and Yeshua, or Yahweh and Yeshua, part 51 tonight. And we'll watch one video, maybe even two tonight. I've maybe got a surprise video lined up. Featured YouTube video for tonight, at least, uh, we'll be watching Exodus 19.18, entitled, Everything Adonai Has Said We Will Do. Now, if you'd like to join us live uh, each week, you're going to need Skype. And just get that on your computer, your desktop, your laptop, your iPhone, your iPad, your Android device, whatever. Even your smartwatch, I think, should work these days. So get Skype, and you're going to need the group link. And the group link will allow you to connect to Skype. Um... So the easiest way to get the Skype link is to go to my website, tatetor.com, and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the web page. And in that little footer section, there's a little icon that looks like an envelope. Click that. As you can see on my screen right now. That'll send me an email. Tell me you'd like to join the live Skype studies and that you need the group Skype link because I don't just post it on the Internet. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of an invite-only type of thing. Um, but it is free. So just join me that way. Send me an email, and then I'll be more than happy to share the Skype link with you. And then I always mention, lastly, while you're down there on my website, at that part of my website, take notice of the little yellow Donate button. If my ministry is blessing you, if I'm feeding you, if I'm in any way um, helping to strengthen your walk with God through Messiah Yeshua, helping to clarify uh, Torah topics, or if I can answer questions for you. I don't have all the answers, but um, being a Torah teacher for going on 25 years now, uh, I think I've got a bit of a handle on some of parts of the Bible, and I'm able to share those parts with you. And so I'd be more than happy to continue to uh, make my resources available to you. But if my ministry is a blessing to you, then um, now is a great time to help me out since I'm in a place where I could use the help. Uh, normally, I, I support myself. I'm working full-time job, and you know I just do all the resources on my own, and people help and give, and that's great. Um, but now I'm in a place where I'm still looking for a job, still been unemployed for the most part of the summer. The, the, the pandemic kind of hit me hard as well, like many people. And I know, I know times are tough, but if you've got extra resources um, and the Lord's laying it on your heart to help me, that's great. Well, then here's a way to do that. Click the little donate button and you can donate securely through PayPal. Okay. All right. Um, I've got a YouTube uh, a channel that I want to promote, but I'll do it a little later on after the videos. For now, let's turn to the liturgy. Um, the liturgy is going to connect us to uh, part of the topic that we're going to talk about in the Roman study, which is a Sabbath versus Sunday topic out of Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. So let's look at a few Sabbath passages. Uh, some of these are my favorite, and many of them are familiar to those of you who are in the know, uh, particularly those of you who are in Messianic circles. Um, and as I mentioned, the live studies uh, takes place each week, and I record the, 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 the video and then I upload it, but you don't get to interact with me unless, and I forgot to plug this earlier, unless you're tuning in uh, to the live study with me live at the time that I'm doing recording, then after the recording, after, I, um, after I'm done and I shut off the, the camera, then uh, via Skype, 
me and whoever the live students are there in the class, we stick around and we have all kinds of interesting chat and discussion, right? So if that's what you'd like to do, you interact with the other students, with me and everyone else, and we can go back and forth, uh, you know, that's the place to do it. So join us live each week. That's exclusive to the live chat. It does not get recorded. It does not get uploaded anywhere. You're not going to be able to later on go on to see in the YouTube on the side bar, you know, running on the right-hand side, all the chat that everyone did. None of that gets captured in, in my version. And if you want to chat with us, join us live each week. All right, let's take a look at the liturgy. Uh, this first passage is out of Genesis chapter 2, and it's the um, uh, concluding part of the opening that most of us are familiar with, where God creates all of the heavens and the earth, and then we, Moses starts writing um, some of the particulars, and he gives some, some kind of brief summary. And so in Genesis chapter 2, I'm just going to read um, maybe just first three verses, um, because it talks about how that he, he brings in the Sabbath day uh, as the, the, the kind of the crown on top of his uh, creation, on top of creating things. Let's just read this. So I've got ESV pulled up on the left side of the screen here, and I've got um, Masrat Akibu pulled up over on the right side of the screen. So let's just start over there. This is ESV Genesis 2.1. Uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Verse 2 says, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And then verse 3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work they had done in creation. Uh, let's turn over to the Hebrew right here, um, starting in verse 1. It says, Vayuhulu hashamim v'ha'aretz v'yichotz v'am. Verse 2 says, Chol Elohim bayom hashvi'i melakto asher asa vayishbot bayom hashvi'i mekom lakto asher asa. And verse three says, Vayivarech Elohim et yom hashvi'i vayikadesh oto ki vo shavat mekom lakto asher bara Elohim la asot. And that's the first part from the Torah section of your Bible, the first five books. Let's turn to another passage out of the Torah. Um, this is a more familiar passage, especially if you've attended a Messianic congregation before. In fact, this particular set of passages has been put to music. Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17. Uh, the latter half of this chapter deals with the Sabbath and about the death penalty attached to it. And I don't want to read the parts about the death penalty because that's kind of grim. Um, we just want to read the part where God tells us that the Sabbath is something that commemorates uh, the creation. And so starting in verse 16, um, God reminds us through the pen of Moshe, verse 16 says of Exodus 31, Therefore, the uh, is that where I want to start? Yeah. Uh, therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Wow. When did the Sabbath come to an end? Yeah, exactly. The sign that speaks volumes. Okay. Verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so notice that in Exodus 31, that it's a sign of God's creatorship. We're going to find out later on in uh, earlier in Exodus chapter 20 when we're giving the, the Ten Commandments. It also commemorates the um, creation of the world. But when we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, I believe it is, it commemorates something differently. We'll look at that maybe in, in, in a bit later on. 
Let's turn over to the Hebrew on the right side of the screen, starting at verse 16. Again, this has been put to music. Uh, the Hebrew says, V'shamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat la'asot et hashabat l'dorotam b'rit olam. Verse 17 says, Be'ni uvein b'nei Yisrael uthi l'olam. There's, there's uh, the, the, the sign uh, forever, uthi l'olam, a, a forever sign. Um, a sign forever. Ki sheshet yamim asa Adonai et shemaim ve'et ha'aretzu ve'yom hashvi'i shavat va'inafash. So this is a sign that God says between me and Israel. It's a wedding ring, right? Just like a wedding ring is a sign of the covenant that you, that a husband and a bride have with one another. The sign, the, the rings are the sign of that covenant. The the Sabbath itself becomes a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. So I think that's important. And as I mentioned, when we get to Romans 14, maybe we'll look at some of the other uh, passages. Or maybe we'll look at them a little later on tonight. Let's turn now to Romans 14. This is going to um, uh, tie us into the Romans 14 discussion as well. And this is um, uh, the liturgy that's tied directly to the study. Um, and we read this last week. We'll read it again. We'll read it again as weeks go by. Eventually, we're going to end up reading all of Romans 14 in the Hebrew, in the English and in the Greek. But for now, we're just taking it a chunk at a time. So Romans 14, we'll, we'll read uh, 1 through 6 again, just like I read last week. So let me not belay the point. Starting over here, verse 1, Romans 14, ESV. Uh, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 4, yeah. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight, verse 5 and 6. And then verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And we're going to ask the question, like we asked already, are these Sabbath verses any day verses? Is is Paul saying, you know, pick a day. doesn't matter which day you pick. Put it up to a vote if you'd like. Whatever your congregation does, I'm on, I'm on board with that, Paul says. Pick a day. doesn't really matter. In other words, is Paul really kind of uprooting what God already said about the Sabbath earlier on that we read in Exodus? Is, God, is Paul saying, you know, God established the seventh day as the Sabbath, and that's his holy day. But... Now that this we're in the New Testament era and things are changing, really it doesn't matter which day you worship on. Every day is holy. All days are set apart. All days are special. Or only one day can be special. But it doesn't have to be the seventh day. You can just pick which day. It can be Sunday. It can be Wednesday. It can be Friday. Whatever day. is up. It's up to you. Is that what Paul's telling us? And does it matter anymore? Those are the questions we're going to be kind of looking at. All right. Non-judgmentally, of course. Let's go back up and read the uh, Greek starting over here on the side of my screen. Uh, verse 1 says, Tan de astenunta te piste pras lambaneste me es dia crises dia legismon. Verse 2 says, Hos men pistue fagen panta ha de astenun la canta estie. Verse 3 says, Ha estion tan me estianta me exutineto. Ha de me estion tan estianta me crinete hothe as. 
Gar Altan Praselabato. Verse four says Su tis a hocrinon alatrion oikatin to idio curio steke a pipte stathesa de stathesa tie de dunate gar ha curias stasi autan. Verse five says Has min gar crine himeron par himeron has de crine pasan. Meron hekastos into idio noi pleurophoresto. And then verse 6 says, Ha fronon tain himeron curio frone. Kai ha me fronon tain himeron curio u frone. Ha estion curie curio estie. Eucharist gar to theo. Kai ha me estion estion curio uk estie kai. Eucharist to theo. And that'll be the Greek for tonight. Um, real quick, I do want to look at those other passages in, I said, let me see, let's turn to Exodus, just, this is real quick. In Exodus chapter 20, I mentioned that the Sabbath, earlier that the Sabbath is a sign of God's creatorship, and we see that God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, and then uh, Moshe summarizes everything there, and then in Exodus 31, God tells Israel to remember the Sabbath day because it's a sign of his creatorship. But in Exodus chapter 20, uh, uh, starting in verse, um, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 8, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then he talks about how that... Um, in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth to see and all that's in them, God rested from the seventh day. So we have a mark of God's creatorship again in recognizing the Sabbath day. So God tells Israel, keep the Sabbath, and in doing so, you are demonstrating that I am the creator. The Sabbath is a reminder of my creatorship, of my authority as creator, and that I'm the one who created everything. And we're going to see how this plays into um, uh, uh, Colossians that we're going to look at a little later on the Shema study uh, about how God is the creator. And that's why I'm emphasizing it now. So Sabbath is a sign of God's creatorship in Exodus 20 and in the um, later on in Exodus 31 when God tells Israel to remember the Sabbath because I created everything. But notice, let me turn for you to Deuteronomy chapter 5 which is the other reading of the ten words, right? It's the second version that we see. And so when we look at Exodus, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and scroll down, let's see, starting in verse 12, God says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord commanded you. So again, we have the similar verbiage from Exodus. This is a repeat from Moshe's perspective, right? And then he goes down to some of the same things about six days, blah, 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 blah. But notice in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, this time Moshe says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Did you notice anything different? In Deuteronomy, Moshe is tying the, the memorial of the Sabbath to our deliverance from Egypt. He doesn't say anything about God creating the heavens and the earth in verse 15 there. Isn't that interesting? It's not just an, a, an omission. So I think what Moshe is doing is he's giving us two very important aspects to the Sabbath. It is primarily a sign of God's creatorship, but it also is a sign that God is our deliverer. And this goes a long way in teaching us the fact that Yeshua is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that it is only in Messiah that we can find true freedom 
from sin, which is typified in the Bible by the slavery in Egypt. So Yeshua is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the chain breaker. He's the one that sets us free. And so when we celebrate the Sabbath, we're not only reminded that God created all things, but we're also reminded that Yeshua is our Sabbath rest, and he's the one that sets us free. Omen? Omen. Okay. I think that goes a long way. All right. Let's turn now to the two little videos. I'm going to try something a little different. I'm actually going to play the videos in my browser this time instead of playing them in VLC. So the first video is Exodus 19:18. Let's full screen it there and sit back and watch the video, and we can talk about it later on if you'd like. Okay. You ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah Teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. The Torah tells us in Exodus 19, 3-8, that Hashem delivered Israel out of the bondage of the Egyptians so that He might enter into a special kind of relationship with them. This relationship would involve them adhering to the Abrahamic covenant that Hashem already made with their forefathers some 430 years prior to this. In this manner, they would become Hashem's most peculiar treasure among all the peoples of the earth. What was the people's response in Exodus 19.8? All the people answered as one, Everything Adonai has said, we will do. Our sin nature makes us prone to disobedience. The Torah of Hashem serves to remind us of how short we fall when we try to measure up to God's righteousness. While it is true that no one alive could have ever kept all of the commandments of God, it is also true that Hashem never expected anyone to be able to. The Torah doesn't demand perfection, else there would be no need of the upcoming details concerning sacrifices for sin. What the Torah expects from its followers, both Jews as well as Gentiles who have been grafted into remnant Israel, is genuine trusting faithfulness to the giver of the Torah, who is the Holy One of Israel. Today, that implies placing one's complete trust in his only unique son, Yeshua. The Torah is a document of grace, not law. We need to begin to understand that this is the true nature and function of the Torah. Translator David H. Stern, in his complete Jewish Bible, stated it succinctly when he explained, For the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah, who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. Short questions, short answers by Tor teacher Ariel and eBible. Yep, that's me. Here's our question. Are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? Well, let's find out. There actually appears to be two questions here. Thus, I will attempt to answer both of the questions. The first question that I perceive is, 
Does Romans 14.5 indicate Christians are free to worship God any day of the week? And the answer to the first question, in one sense, since uh, believers are free to worship God any day of the week, and we should be worshiping Him every day of the week, right? However, our Messianic freedom should not drastically separate us, but cause us to, quote, pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding, end quote. And that's pulled from Romans 14, 19 as well. There's no historical evidence or theological support from the first century to suppose that Romans 14.5 should be interpreted as a freedom to choose worship days. Make sense so far? All right, we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Second question, does Romans 14.5 indicate that we're not bound by law to worship on a certain day? Answer, how one answers this question depends on who the we are in this question and what is meant by, quote, a certain day, end quote. If the we are Gentile Christians, I can only say that the early Messianic communities were a sect of Judaism, right? Read through the book of Acts. This means that Gentile members must have been quite familiar with and most certainly respectful of Torah, even if they did not fully embrace it as Gentile believers. Again, refer to Acts, uh, this time chapter 15. Indeed, the evidence from extant first century rabbinic writings, i.e. Mishnah, indicate Gentiles without legal Jewish status were forbidden from embracing Torah. Thus, popular opinion today would say no to this particular question. However, if the we is Jewish people and the certain day implies Sabbath, then the answer is an emphatic yes. For indeed, Jews are covenantally bound by God and Torah to worship on seventh-day Sabbath. Read Exodus 19.8, read Exodus 20, verse 8, read Exodus 31, 13, 15, and 16, and read Acts 21, verse 20. And you'll see that all of these verses pull Israel into covenant relationship with God. This most naturally includes we Messianic Jews, since like Paul himself, we are 100% Jewish, Acts 22.3, and we're 100% Messianic. Acts 24.14, and we're 100% a part of Israel, Romans 11.1. What is more, even the popular opinion teaches that the Torah is for Jews, right? That's what most people, both Jewish and Christian, come to the conclusion of anyway. So, what are our conclusions to this very short question? In this day and age, believers are free to worship on whatever day the Ruch HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, leads them to worship on. However, it would be wise to at least establish a regular scheduled pattern and location of worship so that one can become accountable to a local congregation, if at all possible. And that's why I said everything I said in my accountability. Biblical freedom is not a license to church hop as often as one pleases. To this degree... There may be no rigid right or wrong answer uh, to this particular question about should I worship on Sabbath day or Sunday. I don't personally agree with using Romans 14.5 to justify uh, worshiping on a Sabbath day, but we'll talk about that in a different podcast. Again, catch me on iTunes. My uh, podcasts are always available for you. Search Tamariel Hanavi. Or you prefer uh, watching your teachings, well then uh, head on out to YouTube and Google search me, Ariel Hanavi or Tate Torah. Subscribe to my YouTube channels. Make sure you hit the little setting that causes you to receive updates whenever I upload a new video. Uh, because I upload new content uh, multiple times a week, okay? Alrighty. If you like what you're watching, head on over to my YouTube channel. You can see on my screen right now, 
www.youtube.com forward slash C-H-A-N-N-E-L forward slash and then there should be a channel name that you're seeing there, Tate Tour Ministries. Right now it's not in, in the URL uh, uh, plot uh, uh, window there, but I put something up post-production that you can see. And if you head on over to my YouTube channel, as I'm uh, plugging it just real briefly, um, the first thing you're going to notice is the video on the home screen, which is John 1-1, in the beginning was the word. Um, if <laughs> I just noticed something very interesting. If those of you are watching my uh, YouTube right now, if you can do me a favor, notice that there's 666 views. Couldn't someone out there please watch this video at least once so that I'm not on 666 views. It's just kind of spooky, right? No, seriously, I'm just joking with you. Um, I don't care if it stays on 666. I'm not superstitious, but I thought that was kind of interesting that it's suddenly on just 666 views. So uh, maybe I'll watch it myself here. So it's just 667. But no, go to my YouTube channel and avail yourself of all the resources there. Um, uh, you can click on the videos tab and it'll show you all the different videos and they're lined up according to the uh, the day that I recorded them with the most recent being in the upper left corner. You can see um, the, the one that the study that we did last week is there available that I uploaded just last night uh, or a few hours ago. And, um, and then all the other uh, uh, video thumbnails, just make yourself, uh, uh, avail yourself of them. Uh, what I always mention is that um, be sure to subscribe. See the little red subscribe button right there? Click the subscribe button. That way uh, it'll send you notifications. I think it only sends it to your um, uh, mobile device. It doesn't send it to your emails anymore these days. But it'll send you a mobile notification once I upload videos. The second thing you need to do is make sure you hit the little bell to receive notifications. Even if you don't hit the little bell, some of the notifications will reach you anyway just because um, YouTube knows that you're subscribed. But if you want the full... Uh, package, then hit the little bell for notifications. Thirdly, uh, hit the little like button uh, when you're watching a video to let me know that you like what you're watching. Thumbs up, uh, give me a thumbs up and help support me that way. Um, and then lastly, um, hit the little share button and share the video with other people. Share it on your favorite social media and things like that. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's minimize that tab and let's open a different tab. Let's turn now to Romans 14 Unplugged. Uh, this is the study entitled uh, Romans 14 Unplugged Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, we'll bump the screen size up a bit the, uh, uh, the, um, so I can read everything a little bit more easy, a little easier. And let's see, let's jump down to this part. So basically, uh, last week we talked about this idea of is Paul giving us the option to just choose whichever holy day we want to. Remember, we're in the middle of discussing, of discussing Romans 14, and within the context, uh, it appears to be that the whole chapter is given over to some disagreements between certain groups in the community, the weak and the strong. We've already talked many, many times, so go back and listen to older um, uh, shows. We've talked numerous times on how he could be referring to weak and strong in terms of Jewish people who keep Torah as the weak, and Gentiles who don't keep Torah as the strong. And that's the favorite way to um, break the chapter apart from a traditional Christian perspective. I think, however, that uh, presents some problems with context, not to mention it, it's slightly insulting to Jewish Torah keepers 
to describe them as weak simply because they're still keeping Torah even though they believe in Jesus. Uh, Paul himself was a Jewish believer and he and he kept Torah and yet he didn't refer to himself as one of the weak. So why is he making an exception for himself and all those other myriads of, of, of uh, Sabbath-keeping Jews and Torah-keeping Jews in the book of Acts? Are they weak? Are they strong? So notice there's some, some pushback when we're describing the weak as Torah-keeping Jews, believing Jews who keep the Torah in Paul's day. I have found by my research, and I'm not the only one who came to this conclusion, that probably the better way to describe the weak are Jews in the community that were attending synagogue who had not yet placed their faith in Yeshua. They were um, still investigating the matter. They're open to the idea of Yeshua being the Messiah, but they haven't come to the personal conclusion and made it a public profession yet. So Paul considers their faith is strong in God, their loyalty to Torah is strong, but their faith in Messiah is weak. And that's what he refers to by weak in faith. In, in, in terms of Yeshua is Messiah. They're not hostile. They're not, they have not turned their back on him, and they're not those types of Jews who were going around seeking to kill Paul, taking vows not to eat or drink until Paul was dead. That's not the type of unbelieving Jew that we're talking about in the first century. We're talking about Jews who are still deliberating. They're still wrestling with this idea, and they're dialoguing with believing Jews and believing Gentiles on the identity of Jesus. And yet, in that state, Paul considers their faith weak, meaning undecided. That's what he means by weak. They're stumbling over this idea that Jesus is Messiah, but they haven't yet fallen. So um, we, we, the strong, have a responsibility to bear with them and to bring them into this relationship with Yeshua. At the same time, they're strong in their faith in God, and they're certainly strong in their loyalty to Torah. And so keeping Sabbath isn't a sign of weakness in any sense. It's simply a sign of covenant loyalty. And of course, we already know from history that many Gentiles were also keeping Torah. So this is how we're looking at this passage, at least from my perspective. It's within that context that Paul talks about um, these uh, some people in this group are keeping special days. We could see that these are Sabbath days versus Sundays, Sunday. But again, that disrupts the context of the passage. And so the better way to view this from context is that Paul's talking about feast days versus, I'm sorry, he's talking about um, uh, fast days versus non-fasting days. And that's why the study is called Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. He's talking about days that you eat on versus days that you don't eat on. And this is voluntary. This is something that's not um, laid out in Torah, in black and white. This is simply something that community by community may differ. And that's why we shouldn't be judging one another over it and why God accepts uh, you whether you keep this fast day or uh, whether you don't keep the fast day, whether you uh, do those certain, certain things. So within that context, in that discussion, we're talking about is the Sabbath something that could be put to a vote? Is it something that could be, you know, going one way or the other? And so uh, last week we looked at these bullet points that you see on my screen right now. Reasons why I do not feel that the Sabbath is being spoken of as something that's that, you know, person should be fully convinced in our own mind whether or not it's something you should do. God's commandments were never really viewed that way. When God gave Israel the Torah, there was a covenant responsibility and a covenant, covenant privilege to receiving God's words. And it's always been that way, and it still is that way. The entire Bible is not something that God puts demand for this vote um, you know, these are my standards of righteousness. You know, killing is wrong, murdering is wrong, adultery is wrong, lying is wrong. What do you guys think about it, God says? No, that's not the way the Bible works. God says, this is right, this is wrong, and you need to line up with what uh, the standard that I've created. 
It's not a sliding scale based on man's opinion. Unfortunately, man treats God's word that way. Don't get me wrong, right? The slippery slope that mankind has been on ever since uh, the garden uh, on his downward slide uh, you know, towards uh, destruction uh, is because man has been on this downward spiral walking away from God's words, and that's our problem, right? That's part of the problem. The solution is to return to the standard that is God's word and to understand that it is God's um, uh, unmovable standard. It's unchangeable. It's not put to vote. And so Sabbath falls in that same category as a set standard that God uh, established between he and his people. Remember the liturgy we just read? It's a sign between me and the children of Israel. Okay, so um, it's within that discussion that we're picking up uh, our, our um, continuing discussion tonight in my study. We're right here where you can see on my screen, and I'll read and you just listen, okay? In my estimation, uh, if the verses in question were truly about Sabbath versus Sunday, then a number of problematic details begin to arise. And the verses we're talking about, let me just show you real quick, are verses 5 and 6, like we read in the past. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. Is he talking about taking a vote? Is he talking about you keep Sabbath while you keep Sunday, and doesn't matter which one days you keep? All right. One person observes the day, maybe the Sabbath, like the Jews. The other person, I'm sorry, and he observes it in honor of the Lord. The other one eats and eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Um, notice, by the way, in, in verse 6 that Paul ties in whatever this day is with eating. That's, in my opinion, an unmistakable clue that he's talking about. Um, fasting. It's not talking about Sabbath. Number one, we never fast on the Sabbath. So one person observes a day in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Notice how he's tying them together. Notice the contrast. The one who observes the day is contrasted with the one who eats, which means the one who observes the day is the one who's not eating, the one who abstains. So um, uh, uh, I, I think this is unmistakable that this is not a Sabbath discussion. But let's go back and let's continue to read uh, what I had. I've got some more bullet points here for us to take a look at. I say, this is my own commentary, to leave the decision in the hands of those who are fully convinced in their own mind appears to be a weak way to establish congregational bylaws for a leader of the likes of Paul. So he's trying to establish these communities throughout his journeys, throughout his missionary journeys, and he's going to go from place to place and tell them, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, um, you guys just need to decide whatever you guys want to do when it comes to Sabbath. It sounds like it would not really... Um, or on worship days. It sounds like it wouldn't really um, uh, uh, establish any sort of cohesion. That's just my opinion. Um, I'm not the only one who thinks that way, but uh, I, I don't believe that that's the way that Paul would have structured his congregations. Um, instead, he's going to be more unified. He's going to bring in leadership. He's going to establish leadership. He's going to establish bylaws. And he's going to ground all of it on the written word of God, which was the only Bible that they had at their time. Right? There was no New Testaments in print yet. The letters that he's writing were being circulated. The Gospels were still being uh, kind of put together and formulated. Uh, we wouldn't have canonization of the New Testament for you know a couple hundred years. So the point being, um, or at least something written for him. So the point being is um, the, new, the, 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 um, the existing Tanakh, at least the, the versions of, of Torah scrolls that were available, maybe not the entire Tanakh, but, but at least the portions of the Torah, the five books of Moses, were already established 
in the faith communities, which would include largely the Jewish communities, but we're now including Gentiles being brought in. So that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I continue here in this next bullet point. Jewish and Gentile believers are to rejoice together, right? Read Romans 15.10. My challenge is, how could the newly emerging Messianic communities, which was largely made up of Gentiles, how could they maintain any, any unity and group cohesion, right, Ephesians 4.13, if we had some folks choosing Sabbath and others choosing Sunday, right? This would be a little confusing. In fact, look at it today. Here we are in the 21st century. We've got many churches who worship on Sunday and many churches who worship on Saturday. We've got Seventh-day Adventists along with uh, the Sabbath-keeping Messianic communities. And for the most part, I'm not saying we're separated in faith, our Sabbath day keepers versus our Sunday keepers. We're not separated in faith. We do um, have a lot of in common when it comes to believing in Jesus. But watch us try to get together for, for um, say, um, community gatherings. Watch us try to get together for park events. Watch us try to get together for the festivals. It doesn't work, really. We oftentimes have conflicts. And at the very least, we're separated by the days. You know, you got the Jews meeting on one day and then the Christians meeting on a different day. And we're just not even in the same building at the same time. Wouldn't it be neat if we could all get together on the same day in the same building? Or at the very least, um, maybe we could all get together on Saturday and then the next day we could all get together on Sunday at least. Let's like share the two. But to have us separated... Um, it just doesn't feel right. It, it just doesn't feel right to me. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. You, you guys write into me. You can comment on my videos and send me emails and tell me where I'm wrong here. But this is just the, the, the feelings, the sentiments that I get. I go on to ask, how could genuine fellowship form in such a setting if Paul's just saying, you know, everybody just pick whatever's right for you? And what if the majority is convinced the Sabbath is correct, right? What if we took it to a, put it to a vote in one community? Let's say we had one church. Let's just not focus on on a lot of groups. Let's just focus on one group. Let's just focus on the say the primary uh, congregation that received Paul's letter. Let's say there's one Roman congregation that Paul had in mind. Like say there's one right in the middle of Rome or something like that, and his letter went there first, and he, they put it to a vote. And the majority says Sabbath is correct, right? Listen to this part. Should those unconvinced leave and go elsewhere? Right? You know, got 100 people in the congregation and 60% vote. We think we should observe Sabbath. You know, all in favor say not, say aye, all opposed, same sign or something like that. <clears throat> and they raise their hands and they vote Sabbath. You know, 60%, okay. What do the other 40% who voted on Sunday do? Where do they go? Do they just concede? Or do they go, mm, you know what I say in my commentary, or should they ignore their conscience, stay and yield to the majority vote? Right? Because Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So the, the 40% are convinced in their own mind that it's Sunday or another day. And the 60% are fully convinced in their mind that it's Saturday. Is Paul suggesting that they split? Right? Should they, as my... Uh, um, my tour study buddy is fond of saying, should they balkanize, right? Should they break up into smaller, mutually exclusive groups that don't agree with one another is what, what the word balkanize uh, indicates. You know, broken up into smaller, sometimes mutually hostile against one another. Um, I'm not saying that Sabbath, Sabbath keepers and Sunday keepers should be hostile towards one another, but sometimes it turns out that way, right? We're arguing over which days are correct. Um, you know, balkanization. Is that what Paul's suggesting? I don't think that's really what he's getting at. So let's keep reading down through this and we'll work our way down and we'll stop at the conclusion. We'll pick up the conclusion next week. Uh, so here's what I have to say. 
How one answers this question depends on who the we are in this question and what is meant by a certain day. This uh, 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 paragraph that we're reading right now was actually captured in a little video that I cr that we watched a little earlier. So go back and watch the video from my YouTube channel, Our Christian Street of Worship Got Any Day of the Week. This is part of the written version of the answer. Um, you know, are Christian free to worship God any day of the week? This is the question that I post on ebible.com. And I go on to say in part of my answer there, which is part of my commentary here, how one answers this question about are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? Uh, are we free to worship God any day of the week is how the original question was posed. That's why it says we. If the we are Gentile Christians... So suppose we, a person says, are we free to worship God in his ache? If the we is a Christian, I can only say that the early Messianic communities in Paul's day were a sect of Judaism. Go back and read Acts 24, 14. So the we of Paul's day, the Gentile Christians, were actually a branch of Judaism. They were a sect known as the way, and this means that they were actually um, keeping Sabbath days right alongside their Jewish counterparts in the synagogues. So the we were actually keep the we Christians of Paul's day were actually keeping Sabbath. This means the Gentile members must have been quite familiar with and most certainly respectful of Torah, even if they did not fully embrace it as Gentile believers. And you can go back and read Acts 15, 19 through 21 to make sure you catch that. In Paul's day, there was a high respect for the Torah among Gentile members very early on because that, that that was, again, it was the natural continuation of the communities of faith that Paul had established uh, in the synagogues and the, the offshoot of them were the sects that were breaking away. It wasn't until a, little, a lot later on that we began to see uh, maybe even a couple hundred years. It was earlier in the first century, I know. We had Marcion in the early first century, but it wouldn't be for several hundred years later until we finally had... Um, um, edicts that were actually written and put together to make formal breaks from the synagogue, a formal break from Judaism, a formal break from uh, Sabbath and uh, Torah keeping and things like that. So that's what was going on. I go on to say, indeed, the evidence from extant first century rabbinic writings, i.e. the Mishnah, indicates that Gentiles without legal Jewish status were forbidden from embracing the Torah. So, um, uh, uh, very early on, Jewish sentiment was pushing back against Gentiles wanting to embrace certain parts of Torah, particularly Sabbath later on, but Gentiles who were brought into uh, fellowship with God through Messiah and through Paul's own writings were certainly exposed to a healthy dose of Torah teaching from Paul himself, who was a master Torah teacher and a lifelong Torah keeper, and therefore um, from, from that perspective, it wouldn't have been unnatural for Gentiles to keep Sabbath and Torah in Paul's own communities, even if later on it was something that the church um, decided to abandon in their uh, discussions. And this, of course, made the Jews happy that the Gentile Christians were abandoning Torah, keeping Sabbath, keeping things like that. And it made the church happy to uh, formulate their own separate communities and things like that. I go on to con uh, conclude, thus popular opinion today would say no to this question as to whether or not um, the question being, um, are, are we free to ch uh, choose any day of the week, citing the Christian freedom themes taught in the New Testament. Okay, So just keep in mind there was a question that I'm answering here. I go on to conclude, and let me just read this last paragraph, then we'll conclude tonight's study on Romans 14. However, if the we as Jewish people, right, are we free to worship God any day of the week, and the certain day implies Sabbath, then the answer is an emphatic yes, for indeed, 
Jews are covenantly bound by God in Torah to worship on Seventh-day Sabbath, and we've got a bevy of verses that we looked at in the uh, video. The point is taken very easily from the Torah that God enjoins Torah keeping, which includes Sabbath keeping, on Israel, which includes Jewish people. So n very few people today would argue that the Jews are covenantly bound against this, would, would, would uh, argue against the Jews being covenantly bound to keep the Torah and Sabbath. Most Christians would agree that the Torah is for Jews and the Sabbath is for Jews. Most Jews, of course, would also agree with the same. Nearly everybody agrees that the Torah is for Jews and that the Jews are not only able to keep it, but should be keeping it. It's their covenant duty. So Paul was Jewish, and he kept Torah his lifelong uh, he kept Torah as his lifelong uh, habit and duty, and this would include Sabbath keeping. And I go on to say this most naturally includes we Messianic Jews, right? Since, uh, like Paul himself, we are still 100% Jewish, read Acts 22.3, and we are 100% Messianic, read Acts 24.14, right? So we're 100% Jews, we're 100% uh, believers in Jesus. Neither one of those discounts us from keeping Torah or Sabbath. And we are 100% part of Israel, right? Romans 11.1. So on all counts, we can and should be keeping Torah and Sabbath. We're Jewish, we're Messianic, we're part of Israel. I go on to say what is more, even the popular opinion teaches that the Torah is for Jews. Even if I don't believe that it's exclusively for Jews, it is true that it is for Jews. But the secret is, is it for Gentiles too? The answer, of course, is yes, it is for Gentiles if you're in covenant with God. So that will be our study for Romans 14 tonight, and we'll begin to look at some of the conclusions next week on this question of whether or not Paul is talking about a Sabbath versus Sunday debate in Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. We'll look through some of the conclusions, and then we'll be returned to uh, start looking at the next few verses in my study here. Who is the brother in uh, Romans 14, 10 through 13? Are the brothers exclusive to Christians? Do the brothers include Messianic Jews? Are they Gentile Christians only? Do they include Messianic Jews? Or do they perhaps even include unbelieving Jews who are part of the uh, uh, synagogue communities? We'll ask that. We'll begin to look at that question probably not next week, but the week after next, okay? So, I think that'll do it for the Romans 14 study. I didn't really need to look at any of these other materials. Let's uh, close that tab, and let's open up this one, Exploring the Shema. All right, let's turn now to um, Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We've got about six minutes left in the hour-long study. I think I'll go just a little bit over, for those of you with my in my live class, just permit me to go maybe five minutes over so I can at least get about 10 or 15 minutes worth of study here. Um, we've been, we, we went a little bit long on the uh, Romans 14. So exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And what we've been doing, let me just drop all the way down to the end of the, uh, of the screen here and look at this table that I produced or that I uh, uh, pulled in from Karm. This is a table where we've been looking at um, the three persons of the traditional Trinity that we're used to um, hearing about in Orthodox Christian circles. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all God, yet they're separate persons. And as we read through our Bibles, we encounter attributes and actions and uh, things like that terminology 
that are interwoven between the three so that it leaves us with the best conclusion. I'm not saying it's the exclusive conclusion because there are other ways to interpret some of the passages that are slightly ambiguous or have um, 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 equivocation in them based on the terminology or lack thereof. But for the most part, as you read through the Bible as a, as a, as a unified whole, you should come to the conclusion that there's one God, and he's, yet he's complex in his nature. And the complexity is, is, is um, grasped or, or understood from the fact that there are titles and attributes that are assigned to uh, the persons in one part of your Bible that then get shared or carried over or applied to one of the other persons, such as Father being called God in one place of your Bible, and then the Son being referred to or called God in a, another part of your Bible, and then the Holy Spirit also being called God in another part of your Bible. And this gives you a little bit of uh, you know, friction and challenge and confusion and tension in your theology, you know, which one of them's God, that type of thing. And creator being shared by all three or resurrection being shared by all three or indwells or everywhere as the table goes on. And so we're working our way down through that logical aspect. And so where we're at tonight is in Colossians 2.9, and we're going to finish Colossians tonight. And what we looked at is that in Colossians 2 verse 9, let me scroll down to it and read it for you. Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We asked the question over the last few weeks, this phrase deity in the, in the Greek, which is um, right here, uh, theatetos, uh, how it's uh, 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 parsed out for us, how it's conjugated out for us, how it's uh, the form of the, the Greek, is rooted in a word, let me pull up the root word here. The root word is theates, Strong's Dermot 2320, which is translated as deity in many Bibles. And we're asking the question, is Jesus full deity or is he just divinity? Because there is a synonym word, right, that is shows up in the Greek, Strong's number 2305, see these two side by side, 2320, theates, and 2305, Theates, and they're very close to one another. In fact, when we look at uh, Theates, 2320, the word translated as deity in most Bibles, and we drop down to the Thayer's Greek lexicon that you can see on my screen right here. I'm sorry, let me drop down a little bit further. Um, no, I, I want to stay here. Yeah, let's look at this right here. Uh, notice in this uh, Bible Hub tool that I've got pulled up, we're going to be using a lot of Greek tonight. We can see here that they say that that um, theates has a synonym which is theates. So theates, deity, theates, divinity. And here's what they say. As far as synonyms are concerned, theates and theates are synonyms. Theates, deity, differs from theates, divinity, as essence differs from quality or attribute. So divinity is in the Greek, according to this Thayer's, and Greek, Thayer's Greek lexicon, divinity, which is theates, this word, is a quality or attribute. By comparison, the synonym theates, which is translated deity, is essence. So in English, we would, we would interact with these words this way. One of these words is describing what something is, and the other word describes the qualities or attributes that something possesses, but perhaps maybe not as essential to the nature or essence or makeup of that thing. 
Make sense? So let's look at this. Paul definitely uses the word theates right here, right? Which again, as I mentioned, the form of it is theatetos in the Greek, this particular noun, to describe Jesus being deity as opposed to just mere divinity. When we look at this passage, however, um, in different uh, versions, uh, let me see, do I have it pulled up? No, I don't want to pull up in many, many versions. Uh, what I said is that this verse is in, in chapter 2, verse 9, is actually a carryover from something he already mentioned earlier. And what he mentioned earlier was in Colossians 1.19. And in Colossians 1.19, let me pull it up. Uh, in Colossians 1.19, he says, speaking of Yeshua, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, he doesn't use the words the theates or theates or any of those words, but the terminology is very similar in both the English and in the Greek. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I already told you that the word God there doesn't show up in the Greek. It just simply says, literally in the Greek, for in him all the fullness was it pleased, it was pleased, it pleased him for all the fullness to dwell. Something to that effect. The word God is supplied by translation. But if you look at uh, verse 9 of, of the next chapter, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. A lot of the terminology is, is captured again, for in him all the fullness, right? We've got the Greek word uh, pleroma and things like that. And so um, what I mentioned last week that we're going to look at this week now in the last, last five minutes is that in Colossians 1.19, it's actually the ending of this miniature hymn that started in verse 15. And so Paul brings in this, this hymn. I don't know if he composed the hymn. There's uh, um, evidence to suggest perhaps to me he brought the hymn in from, from another writer or from another source. Uh, some of the, 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 the grammar doesn't seem to match Paul's grammar and things like that. But nevertheless, let's just say Paul wrote it. It is Paul's letter, right? Paul's letter to the Colossians. And um, Paul's talking about Yeshua. He brings in this discussion of Yeshua in the middle of, it, of his letter in order to let the Colossians know about the supremacy of Yeshua when compared to, say, other deities or other gods or other powers. Uh, the fact that um, um, Yeshua is the one who uh, is the uh, uh, su uh, supreme ruler over all. Uh, remember, Colossians was, was uh, Colossae was a, a, a city with a lot of paganism in, in it. And so um, if we were to go back up into the earlier parts of the chapter, we would see uh, where he talks about, um, I think it's this one, or it might be Ephesians that I'm confusing with. Uh, but it's common that Paul would often have to explain to his readership, particularly those from uh, Greco-Roman backgrounds, that God is, is superior to all other pantheons of gods, and that Yeshua is superior over all uh, um, uh, any other powers and things like that. And so don't let anyone try to look down on you for any reason. Make sure that you are, uh, if you're connected to Messiah, that you're um, uh, aware of, of who he is so that you can realize who you are. That's the point I'm trying to bring up. Um, so uh, it's with that context um, that, uh, and, and Paul says, he, speaking of God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So God brought us into a different domain, a different kingdom through the Messiah. And Paul goes on to say in verse 14 of Colossians chapter 1, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then from there, he begins to, to bring this hymn to their attention to talk about how that Jesus is supreme over all things. Then notice, I want you to notice how that this is a description of 
who Jesus is. It's not necessarily a description of the attributes or qualities that Jesus possesses. And we can see this in both the English and in the Greek. In verse 15, speaking of Yeshua, he is the image of the invisible God, the first one of all creation. The Greek word for is is estin here. He is, and the verb is the um, present indicative active. I like to say that it presently indicates actively, right? The verb tense there, and the mood and things like that is presently indicative, and it indicates, that's what I mean by indicative, and it's an active verb. Jesus presently is the image of the invisible God, the first point, right? right? Uh, the prototokos, uh, which refers to the firstborn son, like in Old Testament times, the one who has the preeminence among the other family members, the one who's going to inherit the family responsibilities from the father. doesn't necessarily mean he has to even be the firstborn. Of the, uh, you know, David was not the firstborn, but he still was the preeminent one. Um, and, you know, uh, Judah was the firstborn, but he, uh, you know, I'm sorry, not Judah, but... Um, uh, I'm getting confused now, but the, of the 12 sons of um, Jacob, uh, uh, the ones who received the preeminence right later on, uh, which would have been like Joseph and his sons and things like that, they aren't the ones who, and even Manasseh, uh, 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 yeah, they aren't the ones who were the firstborn, right? It should have been, you know, earlier in the list with Judah and, and things like that. But the point being is firstborn refers to the one that the father deems is the one that should inherit. That's what I mean by prototokos, the firstborn. And so Yeshua is this firstborn. He is the invisible. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, For by him all things were created. What? By Yeshua all things were created? And he goes on to say that all things were created through him and for him. Now, I said, what? Because didn't we just read in Exodus earlier on in my liturgy that God created the heavens and the earth? And don't we go on to read in, like, I've got Isaiah 44 pulled up, um, that God is the one who says that I am the one who creates you, right? Uh, Isaiah 44, verse, um, let me drop down to verse... Uh, da -da 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 -da. Let's see, here it is in verse 24. Um, Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread forth the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the liars, makes fools of the divinity, turns, men, um, turns wise men back, and things like that. God is the one who created all things, who, who alone stretched out the heavens, spread out the earth by myself doesn't even give room for him doing it through Yeshua if we read Isaiah and take it literally. So if God is the only one who exclusively made the heavens and the earth, he's the exclusive creator, right? Remember, Sabbath is the sign of his creatorship. Then who is this Jesus character by him all things are created? All things are created through him and for him. See, this is <laughs> this clues us into Paul's ontology and the Paul's understanding of who exactly Jesus is when it comes to Godship. Jesus is, and he's building up to this, right? He's building up to it. Um, that's why he says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in, in that in him, the full deity, right? Deity is the God, God and is the stuff that God's made up of, Jesus is made up of. So um, Yeshua is preeminent because actually when it comes to deity, Yeshua is very God. He shares the same nature as God. He has the same makeup that God is. He, it, it, when it comes to essence, Yeshua and God have the same essence. And so... Um, all things are created by uh, through Yeshua, 
by him actually literally and inhabit on earth visible invisible where the thrones are dominions rulers authorities all things are created through him and for him and then he continues in verse 17 and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and then in verse 18 he is the head of the body of the church he is the beginning what the beginning i thought god was the beginning right go back and read through your old testament again go back and read through parts of revelation god has said he's the beginning but paul says that yeshua is the beginning yeah okay figure that one out um uh yeshua is the firstborn from the dead so he's not just the firstborn of all creation right here right the prototokos passes katisios he is also the um firstborn of the dead right the prototokos ectonekron so he's he and he's this way because he's the first one to be glorified when i say he's the firstborn um he's the uh, the, the firstborn of all creation all creation is uh, shares in this natural construct this natural substance and yet yeshua took on a human body but then his body was glorified so in that sense he became the firstborn of all creation the first one to receive a glorified body and Based on that, he is the firstborn from the dead. He rose from the dead. He conquered death, and his natural body will never again suffer destruction or corruption. He took on a glorified body now. He's the firstborn of the dead who rose from the dead and will never die again. Firstborn in that we will follow after him after we receive, we receive glorification as well. And all of this is wrapped up in this word, Firstborn here, Prototokos. So he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And it's based on that that Paul concludes by saying in verse 19, for in him all the fullness, right, the pleroma of God was pleased to dwell. And that's the passage that reminds of verse 9 in the, in the next chapter. For in him the whole fullness of deity the whole fullness of theatetos, the theates, the fullness of deity, not merely divinity, like we see over here in the jehovahswitnesses.org, jw.org's uh, passage, letter to Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 9. How do they translate it? They're not the only ones who do it by, this way, by the way. Oops. Um, right there. Verse 9, because it is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality as if they want to cheapen the fact that Yeshua is full divinity. No, he's uh, full deity, I'm sorry. He is divine, but he's more than that, is the point I'm trying to make. So in closing, Paul, I think, gives us ample opportunity, and this is not the only verse. Don't park all of your theology in one verse. Don't build it all off of some one obscure, um, like I mentioned uh, last week, some some um, hapax legomenoi, hapax legomena, uh, legomenon, singular, legomenon, plural, some uh, a fancy Greek term that means a verse, a word that only shows up once, right, like we find in Colossians here with, uh, let me pull it up here, uh, uh, theates uh, shows up once, if you can look at my screen here and I'm closing with this, theates, how many occurrences? You can see it right there, once, right, that's what we call habax legomenon, and then also this other word, uh, uh, theates also only shows up once, another hapax legomenon, meaning it only shows up once in your entire Greek Bible. It shows up later on in other types of Greek writings, but not in our Bibles. So uh, don't base all of your theology on one verse or one obscure hapax legomenon, one strange little word there, one, one occurrence. What you want to do is, in closing, as I keep mentioning, take all of the Bible in context. Look at what the passages say about 
God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, and put all the passages on one table and let all of the evidence speak for itself. Don't just build all your theology in one verse. Don't cherry pick. That's a bad way to read your Bible. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name, and thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. I know I don't have all the answers, and I know that even the way I explain it is not always um, clear. I know it can be confusing. I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. I pray that you'll continue to help me to understand the text and to be able to articulate it in a manner that is um, uh, um, clear to those who would listen to my commentaries and watch my YouTube videos. I pray for those who watch these videos that you'll bless them and raise them up and protect them, that you'll continue to raise us up and give us a heart to know you and to do your will. Give us ears to hear your voice. Help us to press in so that we can um, uh, uh, walk in the footsteps of Messiah, so that we can be pleasing to the Master, so that we can be vessels chosen for your um, uh, um, building up of your kingdom so that we can share our witness with other people around us. We need to be about our Father's business. We don't need to be sitting around moping and, and worrying and wringing our hands or wondering what the pandemic is going to do and, and if we're going to get catch the coronavirus and, and where the next paycheck is going to come from and, and, and how am I going to pay my bills and, and all of that and who's going to be the next president and, and did all the votes get counted. And, and Lord, all of those are, are very real issues in this world and they cause a lot of stress at times. But at the end of the day, only your kingdom is eternal. Only your name and, you, and the, the glory of your name is that which should uh, um, um, be motivating us uh, to live lives that are worthy of, of being called, bearing the name of Christian. Um, the late Dr. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, um, I'll remember here in a moment. Uh, a, a, a strong Christian uh, pastor um, uh, said, um, I think it was Leonard Ravenhill. He said, yes, it is him. The late Dr. Uh, Ravenhill said, is the life you're living for worth Christ dying for? I like that. I like that. Let us live lives that are pleasing to you and that are worthy of the great sacrifice that you gave for us. And so help us, Lord, during these difficult times and continue to protect us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. 
That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.